0: Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization.
1: Most of that is true. Um, But I got a little nervous when you called me an expert because everybody knows what an expert is. That's somebody who exhausts his audience before he exhausts his topic. So I don't like to be called an expert. The truth of the matter is is I'm in the Windows business, folks. I'm in the Windows business because um, I believe that central to Jewish identity and Jewish religion mission is to get out there into the world. We have to be... We have to have a window out into the world. We have to be leaders and influencers um, and pace-setters to the world. Too much of Jewish life is self-contained in a kind of gilded ghetto where we're only concerned about ourselves and our survival. I don't think God wanted us to be Amish with tzitzis. Okay, he wants us to be, to relate to the outside world. And in the West, in the West, that really means primarily relating to Christians. In Israel it's a different issue. But certainly in Europe and the United States, it's our interrelationship with Christian culture and uh, Christian individuals. And, that, and, and there's a fascinating story that's being written today. Uh, um, there's a fascinating story that's still being written, that's ongoing because of huge changes um, that occurred both in the Jewish world and in the Christian world. And I'll take you through some of that um, and then I hope we can have a a good discussion about this. Um, But the truth is that the rabbis, rabbinic tradition, has been um, perplexed and almost schizophrenic, almost schizophrenic about our relationship with Christianity and Christians. Um, and in order to understand what's going on now, we have to understand how we got here and what the past is. So I'm going to take you through a little bit of the past um, to bring you up to the present. And another major point is that much of our attitude toward Christianity and Christians has been influenced by the Christian attitude toward us. Okay? We sometimes fool ourselves by thinking we lived in some isolated cultural and intellectual and religious ghetto but the fact is that our attitudes toward, it's, this is kind of basic human experience, right? your attitude toward someone else is very much influenced by how that person treats you and that's exactly uh, what has happened over the millennia with respect to rabbinic attitudes toward Christianity. Um, there's a very famous commentary on the chumash on um, the Bible that sets the tone for the traditional attitude uh, of Jews toward Christians. Uh, This is a statement of early rabbinic commentary about Esau and Jacob. Esau and Yaakov. Um, Has anyone ever seen this before? It's Halacha biyadu asha Esau sona li Yaakov. For those Bible scholars in the group, there's this fateful moment in the book of Genesis when Asab and Jacob, Asab and Jacob are twins, right, they're fraternal twins and Asab wants to kill his brother Jacob and Jacob runs away, he lives with his uncle Lovan for 20 years because he, he flees his brother and now he has to come back and um, in chapter 33 of Genesis there's this faithful, faithful uh, confrontation between the two twins. <coughs> Jacob doesn't know whether his brother still wants to kill him or whether he's softened and um, now wants to have a, a, a brotherly loving relationship. So the Torah says so the Torah says that uh, Jacob is, is returning and Esav is coming to meet him with 400 men. And Jacob gets very scared because he thinks he's coming with his army to kill him. And the Torah says they approach each other and Esav um, kisses Jacob and then they both wept. So, um, if you open up a Hebrew Bible to that verse, what you will see is over the word that of kissed Jacob, there's all kinds of funny dots, funny dots. And the rabbis say, these funny dots are telling you something. They're telling you that he kissed him, but not wholeheartedly. And what kind of kiss was it? Was it a mafia kiss? Was it a kiss of death, or was it a kiss of brotherly love? And the commentary, the commentary is that it's an eternal truth that Esau hated Jacob. He hated him in the past, he hates him, he hated him at this moment, it was not a sincere kiss, and he continued to hate him after this. Now Esau and and Jacob, or Esau and Yaakov, became code words, code words in Jewish culture. At the time of the Talmud, at the time of the Roman Empire, Asaph was a code word for Rome. Anybody know why, to figure out why? What did Asaph and Rome have in common?
2: Herod, Herod great.
1: He was, what? Herod was Nehemiah. He was, yeah, but what was that got to do with Asaph? What does the Torah tell us about Asaph? What was his color? Red. Red, and what was the imperial, imperial color, right? of Rome was read. So when Jews wanted to talk about Rome and they couldn't because they would get their head chopped off if they mentioned Rome they mentioned Aesop. Okay, It was code word and then and then when, when Christianity became the imperial religion of Rome in the fourth century because Constantine the Emperor converted, Aesop became the code word for Christianity it's very easy to do, because what's the imperial... What's the color of Christianity? Red. Red. So in the Middle Ages, when Jews and uh, Christians really had at it and were at each other's throats, most of the time it was Christians at Jewish throats. Okay? Um, this rabbinic statement that Esau hates Yaakov really was that Christianity is a mortal enemy of Judaism. Um, and the truth is that had a lot of empirical truth to it. Because here's what the traditional church teachings were about Judaism. And this may seem very foreign to you because we live in an almost post-Christian culture. And even within Christianity, it's a modern Christian culture and you don't hear too much of this. But for 1,800 years, 1,800 years, this is what official Christianity taught about Judaism. Okay, the first is that Christianity supersedes Judaism. What does that mean? That before Jesus Judaism was true. After Jesus, after Jesus, Jesus came to replace Judaism with Christianity. Now Christianity is true and Judaism is false. Okay. Um, Secondly, the church replaces the Jewish people. Who are the people of God? It used to be the Jewish people, the people of the covenant. Now it was the church. And the Jewish people have outlived any validity, any purpose, any favor in God's eyes. And there's a famous church expression, extra ecclesiam nulla salus. Any Latin mavens in the group? No salvation outside the church. If you're not a Christian, Forget it. There's no hope of being saved. Right? And who were the primarily who were primarily the non-Christians in Christian Europe in the Middle Ages? The Jews. Right? So there was no hope for Jews as a people, or or um, as individuals, if they remained Jews. Right. And Jews were blind to Jesus as the messiah. Jews are very stubborn. They refuse to believe that Jesus was the messiah and there are all kinds of consequences to that. One consequence was that you couldn't kill Jews. This is Augustine's doctrine. You, Christians couldn't kill Jews, right? but they, they should humiliate them and subordinate them. Jews could never be the equal of a Christian. Um, secondly, because Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus, they were cursed. They had the curse of Cain. What was Cain was committed the first homicide in human history, according to the Bible. Christians were good; they knew their Bible, at least Christian theologians. And Cain was the symbol of the murderer. But Cain only killed his brother, who was a human being. Jews killed God, so Jews had the curse. Jews had the curse of Cain as deicides. And what was the punishment for Cain for killing Abel? Anybody know? Exile, exile. Yes, Cain, Cain lost any sense of being at home or rights to homeland. He was doomed to wander the earth. Now Aretz is the Hebrew, right? So how did this apply to Jews? God promised the land of Israel, the land of Canaan to Jews in the Bible, but because they're responsible for killing Jesus, they've lost all rights to the biblical homeland they're doomed to wander, the wandering Jew. That's a function of of this um, traditional Christian theology. They lost all rights to the biblical homeland. They could never go home again. Uh, And for 1800 years and 1900 years, that was true. They didn't go home again. So there's a famous, if you're not a words person, if you're a a picture person, um, this is a picture of two statues that you'll find in the cathedral in Strasbourg, France. Actually, you also find it in Notre Dame, in Paris, uh, but this is the most famous version of it. It's called Ecclesia and Synagoga. Ecclesia means church, synagoga means the synagogue, this is Judaism, this is Christianity and Judaism. And what do you see in the two figures? Well, well let's, take the, let's take the church. What do you, what do you see here? What's her posture? Majestic, right, erect. She has a staff that's straight. She's holding a chalice. right? And what do you see about of synagogue, right? She's looking downward, she's humiliated. Um, her staff is broken. You can't see this, but she's wearing a blindfold because she's blind. Um, and she's holding the Torah downwards toward the earth as if it's of no value. That's the, that was the relationship that the church taught, the ideal relationship, between Christianity and Judaism. Ecclesia and Synagogue. Go to Strasbourg; it's worth it just to see these things. Okay, yes? Sorry, I can't see from here. Is Ecclesia, is she, is her staff a standard? Uh, yes, yes, okay. One of the greatest Christian theologians in all of history was Augustine. Some people call it Saint Augustine. The Christians, to Jews, it's Augustine. And he, and he wrote a book called City of God, and he says as follows. He was the one who said that Jews should not kill, Christians should not kill Jews, just as it was forbidden to kill Cain in the Bible, right? Because Cain was a walking symbol of, of the evil of homicide. So it was, Jews should not, uh, Christians shouldn't kill Jews, but Jews should always have their back bent down, always. In other words, they should walk around humiliated within Christian society. Secondly, Jewish misery is the will of God. And thirdly, humiliation. Jewish humiliation is a negative witness for the world to see the truth of Christianity. It was the price that everybody saw for rejecting Christianity. Jewish misery was a teaching lesson to Christians about what happens if you reject Christianity. This was the historical relation. This is the church theology regarding the Jewish people and Judaism. Yeah? So
2: then, what happens to Christian theology when we come you know, a couple hundred years forward into uh, um, the Inquisition, Torquemada? Ah,
1: okay, well, the Inquisition, it's great that you're here. You're like a straight man, you're going right into the next slide. Okay? The, the Inquisition and the persecutions were a result of these teachings, okay? So here's a couple of examples. In the 11th century, the Crusaders massacred thousands of Jews in the Rhine, the Crusaders who were on a religious mission, right? To rescue the Holy Land from the infidel Turks in Jerusalem, place where I live. Um, But they said, listen, why do we have to go all the way to Jerusalem? We can just slaughter the the infidel Jews in Germany, in the Rhine Valley of Germany. So about 5,000 Jews were killed by, by Crusaders. In the 12th to 15th century in Spain, sorry, right, hundreds of thousands of Jews, literally hundreds of thousands of Jews were murdered, were forced to convert, or were evicted from Spain by Isabella, actually it was in 1391, 100 years before the, uh, the expulsion of Spain. But this was a result of the teachings was known as, became known as the teachings of contempt. This is official church doctrine. And, you know, other examples, Innocent uh, the Third in the 12th and 13th century forced Jews to wear distinctive badges with Jewish stars on them so everybody would know who the, who the, the outcast was, who the pariah was, and that was later adopted by the Nazis. The Nazis, were, the Nazism, and, the, and the, the final solution was not a Christian movement, okay, but Christianity prepared the way for it in that regard. Yeah, uh, just let me, and uh, here they burned the Talmud, they burned their sacred books, they burned their schools, they confiscated their schools. They, if you go to Toledo, you'll see what was originally a church that be, there was originally a synagogue that became a church because the church just took it over. Yeah? So, so that meant
2: that the crusaders repudiated deviated
1: Yes, yes, that's true. And there are even some instances where the Jews ran to the home of the bishop to be saved because they understood, and the bishop tried to keep them alive, um, but couldn't, didn't succeed. Yes, that's true. The Crusaders did not act strictly according to the doctrine of Augustine, but their hatred of Jews was fed by this doctrine of contempt. Yeah. Um,
2: in France, there were outside of Avignon the Pope's Jews, the Jews that were kept in the little ghettos outside the walls. Right. Is that part of the... Yeah, well, the whole idea of a
1: ghetto, you know, the ghetto was a result of isolating Jews, keeping them away from Christians because you didn't want them to um, to infiltrate and to, um, you know, influence in a negative way Christians. The whole idea of a ghetto that we, I guess, take for granted now, that's a result of this Christian teaching. Absolutely. Um, Now if you think this was only, oh, say so here's, I'm sorry this didn't come out, there's something called the Judensau, means a, a Jew pig. So if you go to Wittenberg, Germany today, right, to the church where Martin Luther used to pray, right, there's a, a, a statue, there's a relief, of a pig, um, and under the pig there are people dressed in, with, wearing Jewish hats, suckling Milk from the pig—that is, Jews were the, and, and this is not the own. This is a, a common motif in the Middle Ages: the Judensau, that Jews were pig-like. They got their sustenance from pigs, there, and pigs were the symbol of ugliness and filth and slovenliness. Okay, so that's the way Jews were regarded in many very deeply pious Christian circles during the Middle Ages. Yeah. So, have, have you heard, heard any updates, updates if there was success in getting the church to remove the union there's been pressure over the last But it's week. still there. Do you
2: know where things
1: stand? Because no, no. That's the great thing about very pious people, both Christians and Jews. They're very averse to change, you know. Um, but we're going to talk about why there is pressure today. Yeah. Okay, we haven't gotten there yet. Okay, so here's an interesting little tidbit. Um, if you thought this was only the case in the Middle Ages, you should think again. Right? Because Her- Theodor Herzl, that Meshuggah who had this idea that you should maybe leave the ghettos of Europe and go back to this one place in the Middle East that doesn't have oil, you know, <laughs> he was very naive politically and he thought if he went around to the emperors and uh, powers, the political powers that be in Europe, he could convince them to support his idea of Zionism, of Jews returning to their biblical homeland. So he went to see, in 1904, he went to see Pope Pius X. He was convinced that he could could influence and convince Pius X to support Jews going back to their homeland. After all, Pius X knows the Bible. He knows that God promised the Jews homeland in, in uh, the land of Israel. So here's what Pius X told him, this is what Theodor Herzl writes in his diary. He says, it's not in our power to prevent you to go back to Jerusalem, but we can never give you our support. I cannot give you any other answer. The Jews have not recognized our Lord, hence we cannot recognize the Jewish people. So when you come to Palestine, We will be there to baptize all of you. Okay. Now, he wasn't, he didn't hate Jews. He didn't, you know, he wasn't an anti-Semite, a racist kind of a character. This was simply traditional Christian teachings, theology about Jews. Extra ecclesium Nullus Salus, if you're not baptized, There's no hope for you, so we can't stop you from. We'd like to stop you from coming back, but, but the church doesn't have the power in 1904, so you can go back. But when you get there, we're going to be there ready to baptize all of you. That was in 1904, so. That's the Christian side. What did Jews or the rabbis, at least, think about Christianity? So in the first, and, and it's a, a story that's evolved. It's an attitude, it's a Jewish law that has changed over the years. So I'm just going to give you a very brief synopsis of it. In the first and second centuries, the, who were the original Christians? Anybody here read the Gospels? Jews. Jews, right? They were Jews who happened to believe in a Messiah. Right? They were Jews. If you read the Gospels, you see Jesus is preaching in synagogues. He's preaching to Jews. There were a sect of Jews. Yes. A sect of Jews. L'Havdil, somewhat like you would say little Lubavitchers today. Mm-hmm. You know, they're Jews. They're a little Meshuganah about their ideas. You know, they believed that the Rebbe was the Messiah, so these Jews believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were within the Jewish community, okay? But that later evolved into something where they said, we no longer have to follow the Torah. We no longer have to follow mitzvot, because Jesus came and um, he made all of the Torah irrelevant, or at least the laws of the Torah irrelevant. And at that point, they ceased, they ceased being a kind of tolerated sect within the Jewish community and became a mortal enemy of Jews. And the rabbis referred to the belief belief in Jesus and belief in, the, in Christianity as a Zarah. Avodah Zarah literally means a strange worship, but it's rabbinic code language most of the time, not all the time, most of the time, it means idolatry. Right? Heresy, heresy. So in the first and second centuries, the rabbis saw Jewish Christians as heretics, or even idolaters. You can't get lower on the scale of on, the high, on Jewish high, religious hierarchy than being an idolater. That's the worst. So now. Having,
2: if you go, I mean, you, still in, in Catholic theology, there's still a lot of, uh, you know, a very strong symbolism, I mean, idolatry. I mean, you know, Mary, there's, you know, whether it's to, uh, well, Jesus you know, Mary look, or any of the Apostles we we Christians. live in a
1: society where we freely interact with Christians. Most of them are good guys, good gals. You know, they're civilized, they're modern, they're sophisticated people. Isn't it a little weird to call, think that them them as idolaters? Idolaters are like ancient, primitive, pagan people, but I mean, these are nice guys. So, in what sense were they considered idolaters? Okay. Well, there's so, some aspect, there's some aspect of Christian worship that's very, very foreign to what we're used to, okay? And there's two specific aspects of it that deeply troubled the rabbis. One was this notion of a trinity. You know, there's a notion that God has three parts, or three agencies, or three, was found in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit. Um, that's absolutely taboo in Jewish theology. What do we say? The, the, what's the creed of Judaism that religious Jews say twice a day? That what do we say? Shema Israel, Hashem Hashem Echad. And when we say Echad, we mean one, absolutely one, not three. In Christian theology, three equals one, but in Ju- in Judaism, three can never equal one. So the notion of a Trinity is very foreign to us. Right. And secondly. Secondly, there's this notion of in the incarnation. The incarnation means that God, the non-physical God, became carnate, became physical, became embodied in a body of a human being. That's very, very foreign to us, very foreign to us. So these notions were considered idolatrous notions, idolatrous notions, And, and the rabbis categorized Christianity as idolatry. Same, idolatry, same kind of idolatry that took place in the Talmud and in the Bible. because Not necessarily because of the anti-Semitism or the hatred or the persecutions um, that Christianity taught about Jews, but because, of this, but because of the notions of the Trinity and the Incarnation. Deeply, deeply troubling to Jewish theology. God can't be divided into three good Jews would say. God can't become a human being, good Jews would say.
0: As theology
1: as it is to unify the Roman Empire under one belief, because as right. you look at Constantine, the empire starts to break apart. Right, that's true. But it has theological consequences. In other words, you're talking on the level of politics, and that's absolutely true. So when when Christianity becomes the empirical, imperial religion of Rome, okay, it adopts a lot of the pagan Roman mores and attitudes and ideas and then when, when Rome falls in 425 okay, and the Christians have a major council called the Council of Trent in which they formalize true Christian belief this becomes, in other words the Trinity and the Incarnation become official Catholic, if you read the um, Catechism of the Catholic Church today you, it will say that God became incarnate in Jesus and God then there's the Holy Trinity God is divided into three personalities or three entities okay now that is very very foreign to any traditional Jewish belief okay now in the later Middle Ages the rabbis understood that there was a need somehow to to come into some some kind of um, modus vivendi with Christians, right? Because how many here are Ashkenazim? If you're Jewish, Ashken. What does that mean? Where, where do your ancestors come from? University. Where in Europe? In Poland. Poland. Poland, Germany, Austria. Austria. Austria, right? Ukraine. The Ukraine. So who are the non-Jews in those countries? Christians. Right? And Jews have to live with these Christians, and they have to do commerce with these Christians, and they have to interact with these Christians. Now, if you know a little bit about Talmudic law, there was an absolute taboo of doing anything with idolaters, right? The Talmud says you're not allowed to go into partnership with idolaters. You're not allowed to have commercial dealings with idolaters, because they'll take their prophets and they'll pray to their idols, which Jews are not supposed to facilitate Gentiles from doing this. now we get to the historical dilemma. Jews had to do these things with Christians, otherwise they couldn't survive. Jews were very, lived in very small communities. They, had to, they couldn't be economically self-sufficient. So they had to engage in commerce and partnership with Christians. And the rabbis looked around and they said, what's going on here? You know, there's only two possibilities. If the Christians are complete idolaters, then all these Jews are sinning. It, and they the rabbis didn't want to say that so they said we have to think about Christianity a little differently, right? It's not pure ancient idolatry. It's something else. Now, what's the difference between the idol the idolaters of the Bible and Christians? The idolaters of the Bible worship stars and trees and the moon and the Sun and all these physical objects. Christians don't do that. Christians, in fact, Christians believe in the same God of heaven and earth that created the world in Genesis. They believe in God the Father, that's the same God. So the problem with Christianity, said these rabbis, is that they have a concept of our God, the Jewish God. The problem is they have all these other things attached to it like the the, the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's unacceptable for Jews to believe this, but it's okay for Christians to believe that because Jews have to be pure monotheists. Christians are, according to Jewish law, can, they're allowed to believe in Christian theology because it does worship the God of heaven and earth, but it has all these other things attached to it, which is forbidden to Jews, but permitted to Christians. Okay, so you find this very nuanced, opinion, and it, you know, this could be a whole class just on this position of the rabbis, but basically they were forced into saying that because they were forced into accepting some kind of modus vivendi with Christians in the Middle Ages, otherwise Jewish communities couldn't survive. So that was the distinction that they made. But
2: that's nothing new, if you look at, all the way back to initial 10 commandments, I am your God above all other gods. Judaism does not start off as a monotheistic. Uh, Yeah, you
1: could say that, that's correct. In other words, and that would mean, you know, above all other idols, that's the way a traditional Jew would think. What else does it say in the 10 commandments? Yes, in the second commandment, it says you should not make any images of God because God is not physical. Now, Christianity couldn't accept that because God is physical, at least one part of God is physical. So, a traditional Jew saw Christians as in violation of the Second Commandment, because we're not supposed to make, depict God in any physical form. And you and you go to churches today, and what do you see? All these icons and statues. You know something that is unknown of, unknown in Jewish religious history or experience. Yeah.
2: It's It's been argued that there was a split in the early church. Mm-hmm. And the was, of course, heavily influenced by Hellenism that
1: had Right. All that's, that's true historically, but I'll tell you something. When I want to go, and I do go to the power center of the Roman Catholic Church, right, I go to this little uh, one square mile area of Rome where there's a man who wears a white kippah, right, and uh, a big cross and a white gown. And all the people around him wear red robes and red kippot, and it's not in Jerusalem. It's in a place called the Vatican, the, the, right? So that's the center of the Catholic Church. That's the cent- and that was the center of Christianity. The, the Jerusalem uh, Rome, well,
2: became extinct.
1: The, yes. Because so, the
2: Romans destroyed.
1: Okay, okay, but but the center of the Roman Catholic Church is Rome, or the more, more precisely the Vatican. And that's not all of Christianity, but it's the big elephant in the room in Christianity. There's 2.2 billion Christians, 1.4 billion of them are Catholics, are Catholics. You know, they're slightly larger than the Jewish people.
2: If if you have this division and cut off half of it, you're left with the other half, which is the elephant.
1: Yeah, but that's the one we live with. That's That's what we live with. That's Christianity today. That's the Jews, that's the Christianity that Jews encountered over history. Okay, we're a long way from the original Christianity of 1st and 2nd century. Now, with the advent of modernity, Jews began to understand other things about, about Christians. Not simply that they weren't idolaters, but there's a, certain common, there's a certain common aspects of our beliefs.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.ValleyBaitMidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning.
1: So here's a remarkable statement that was made by a 17th century, great 17th century rabbi, Rabbi Moshe Rivkus, who's known in in learned circles as the Bear Haga'ola. And here's what he said. He said that he lived in Lithuania. My grandparents came from Lithuania. So he, so he was living with my ancestors. And he said the Gentiles in whose shadow Jews live and among whom Jews are dispersed believe in the creation of the world and the exodus from Egypt and many tenets of the faith. And what Gentiles is he talking about? Who were the Jews living with in Lithuania? Christians, Christians, right? So he said, hey, wait a second. Wait a second, they believe very much of what we believe. They believe in Mas'ed Bereshit, in the creation of the world. They believe in the exodus from Egypt and many other tenets of their faith. And when they worship, and when they worship, who are they, who are they worshiping to? They're praying to the creator of heaven and earth, to the creator. And, and, and therefore, in a very real sense, we have the same God with them. And therefore, we're obligated to pray for their welfare, because they're fellow believers. Very, very far from this notion, well, these are the other. These are idolaters, you know, that we have nothing in common with. So you see a little bit of, of a new sense coming in. Now, in the 18th century, there's a very great rabbi, Jacob Emden. Um, he was the, the greatest rabbi in Germany in the first half of the uh, of the 18th century. And here's what he said. He says, Jesus brought a double kindness to the world. He did two really wonderful things for the world. Number one, he removed idolatry from these pagan nations. If Christianity hadn't spread, the rest of the world would be completely pagan, said uh, Jacob Emden. And he obligated them in the Seven Commandments of Noah, the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noah. Anybody know what they are? See, Judaism never taught extra ecclesium nulla salus, that you have to be Jewish to be saved. Um, they said Jews have certain beliefs and Gentiles also have a certain covenant with God and we have 613 commandments they have only seven commandments. They're known as the Seven Commandments of Noah. and they're basically the laws of civilization. One of the seven commandments of Noah, you're not allowed to kill, you're not allowed to steal, you're not allowed to rape and pillage, you're not allowed to be excessively cruel, even to animals, okay? You're not allowed to be sexually wild. You have to have certain laws of, of uh, marriage and incest is, is um, prohibited. Basic fundamental laws of civilization. And guess who brought those moral patterns to the pagan nations of the world? Christianity," said um, Jacob Emden. So Jews should consider this a very po- Christianity, a very positive historical phenomenon. Now, the last one is Shimshim Raphael Hirsch in 19th century Germany, and he said as follows: Christianity, even though it became estranged from Judaism. Um, it brought to the world that was sunk in idol worship and violence and immorality and degradation of human beings—in other words, the pagan world. Right? Christianity brought to the pagan world the tidings of the one God, the brotherhood of all men, and human superior, uh, superiority over the beast. Right? It was a major step in bringing the world closer to the goal of all history. So they began to look at Christianity very positively, even though, even though. Christianity was still teaching its doctrine of contempt toward Jews. And then why, how could this be? And the answer is that there was a certain spirit of tolerance and coexistence and pluralism that was creeping in to Germany um, in, in the 18th century and 19th century. Right? And Jews responded to the sense of pluralism and tolerance with a sense of theological tolerance on their own. So here you have a little bit of the schizophrenia that I was talking about. Early on, the rabbis thought of Christians as just pagan idolaters. Right? But later on, with the advent of modernity, they, for a variety of reasons, they changed their attitude and had a more sympathetic attitude toward Christianity. Now, something happened in the 20th century that changed Christianity very fundamentally, and that was the Shoah. For us, the Shoah, was a a physical crisis. We didn't know the final solution aimed at exterminating the Jewish people physically. Okay, and it almost succeeded. Killed six million of our brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. It almost succeeded on a physical level. But the Shoah was was a huge crisis for Christianity, a spiritual crisis, a moral crisis. Why? because where did the Shoah happen? In the heart of Christian culture. In the heart of Christian culture. The extermination camps, the death camps were in Poland. Poland is 98% Catholic. Okay, how could it be that Christians could do this? That was the spiritual and moral problem that Christianity confronted after the Shoah. How could it be that Christianity could produce something like this? And this disturbed this disturbed Christian leaders, and they began to think about what went wrong. How could it happen? How, what role did Christianity, did the church, both the Catholic and the Protestant churches, play in the near success of the Nazi final solution? And it disturbed Christian theologians. And then there was uh, a huge conference between 1961 and 1965 called the Second Vatican Council. I remember it when I was in high school, I remember the front page of the New York Times having this huge picture of all of the bishops of the Roman Catholic Church came to Rome for this huge conference and it uh, had, uh, had really very little to do with the Jews. Right? The, anybody know what the purpose of the Second Vatican Council was between 1961 and 1965? There was a visionary pope John 23rd, and he said, wait a second, the church is way out of date. The church has to update its beliefs and doctrines and practices into, uh, to be a little more consistent with modernity. So the purpose of the Second Vatican Council was to update the church and to bring it more into line with modernity. I'm an Orthodox Jew. Sometimes Orthodoxy needs a Second Vatican Council, I would say. We need to be brought up you know, into modernity, but the church realized that, and it had nothing to do with Jews. And but there was a, a fateful meeting. Fateful meeting between a Jewish man named Jules Isaac and John the Twenty-third. Jules Isaac was a Holocaust survivor. Jules Isaac was the minister of education of the, of France, and in 1960, and, and he lost his whole family in the concentra- in the extermination camps. And when he survived, he began to, he, he, as a scholar, as a historian, he wanted to understand how this could happen. So he did a lot of research, year after year after year, and he came to the conclusion that it only happened because, because of the church teachings, the anti-Semitic teachings of contempt. It was Jules Isaac who, who coined this term, teaching of contempt. So he asked for a meeting with John XXIII in January of 1961, and he had an audience with the Pope, and he convinced the Pope that church teachings were largely responsible for what happened to the Jews. And the Pope was a spiritual and intellectually honest man, and and he called one of the cardinals and he said, this has got to go on to the agenda of the Second Vatican Council, the church teachings toward the Jewish people. And um, because of those teachings, because of those teachings, because, because of that recognition, uh, the council in, 19, in October of 1965, passed uh, a famous document, short document, but, but a revolutionary document, that changed the whole teaching of the Catholic Church toward the Jewish people and to Judaism. And here's what it said. The, Jew con- the church condemns all anti-Semitism. Now think about this in the context of the juden and what Augustine said about Jews being blind and stubborn. Okay? The church condemns all anti-Semitism because it understood that it was responsible for much of the historical anti-Semitism in Europe. Secondly, Jews are not responsible for the death of Jesus. That's a, that's a theological error to believe that. You cannot hold Jews responsible for the death of Jesus third that the church is not superseded or christianity has not superseded judaism judaism is still alive and well and the covenant between god and the jewish people has not been revoked it's not the case that for judaism to be for christianity to be true judaism has to be false they can both be true at the same time judaism is still a living valid religion okay. and very importantly it recognizes This is a quote from Nostra Tata that basically says that the the church recognizes that its roots are in Judaism, it's it's grateful for its roots in Judaism, and it behooves Christians to study Judaism to understand their own roots. You can't be an informed, good Christian unless you understand Judaism. Right, so here you have an asymmetry, because we can, we can understand Judaism without understanding Christianity, but they can't understand themselves as Christians without understanding their Jewish roots. And, and this was, uh, they call it the Copernican revolution in Christian theology, right? This is turned night into day. It reversed Christian thinking and teaching, official teaching about Jews and the Jewish people. Yes? No, that comes from a passage in um, uh, the book of Romans that the, 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 there's an olive tree and Christians were grafted into, um, into the root of the olive tree. Okay, But they used that, Nostra etate use used that um, that image um, to talk about this here, the well-cultivated olive tree. That's That's from, uh, that image is from the book of Romans, okay? So this was a huge change, huge change, um, that the church now recognized the validity of Judaism and the Jewish people and condemned any kind of anti-Semitism whatsoever. Here's a new statue of Ecclesia and Synagogue. You remember the statue that we saw from Strasbourg, right, where you had Ecclesia was stood up straight and proud and and Synagogue was humiliated and looked downward and was defeated and had a blindfold around. This is a statue that is on the campus of St. Joseph's University, a good from pious Catholic university in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And this is the contemporary post Nostra Aetate relationship of Ecclesia and Synagogue. So, what do you see? Two proud images, both erect, both proud of their heritage. You know, here's Synagogue holding a Torah. You know, very proud. You don't. You don't get the sense of superiority, inferiority. Um, now, this was done not by a few Meshuggah Catholics. Liberal, soft-hearted, weak-kneed Catholics. This was unveiled by Pope Francis, you know, uh, in I don't know, maybe two years ago. I think it was when they unveiled. What? When he went to
2: Philadelphia.
1: Yes, yes. He stopped stopped and he unveiled this, right? So there has his his bracha is on this. uh, Yes, yes. So I mean, this is. This shows you how sometimes you know the most unexpectedly wonderful things can happen okay. now in the year 2000 just another contrast in the year 2000 John Paul Pope John Paul came to Israel now remember what Pius X told Theodor Herzl right we can never give our acceptance we can never recognize you going back if you come back we're going to baptize you right? all of that so here's what John Paul II. Here was his prayer that he stated at Yad Vashem and then he came to Davin at the Kotel and he put a little, you know, the Jewish practices to put a little piece of paper in the crevice of the wall in the Kotel and um, here's what he said. This is his tefillah, God of our fathers, he chose Abraham and his descendants to bring your name to the nations. We are deeply saddened by the behavior of those who in the course of history have caused your children to suffer. What is he saying here? This is his apology for all the Christian persecution of Jews over the ages. Sorry. And he actually put that on paper? Yes. Yes. Wow. Ecclesiastes and
2: synagogues. is there any side commentary that neither the church nor Orthodoxy really would lend that respect to women, and then now the, women the, the, are, the women's
1: issue is, a, invite me back, I'll be very happy to come next year, or, or Rav Shmuley can talk about this. The women's issue is a big issue for traditional Catholics and traditional Jews. Okay, that's a huge issue that's independent. When, when I go to major events with high-level Catholic people, we had a meeting, this is in Salerno, Italy. We had a wonderful meeting. Uh, five Orthodox rabbis and five cardinals. We talked for three days to 400 people. Standing room only, right? The, the biggest problem that, these liberal, that I, amongst the liberal Orthodox rabbi, had was trying to convince the princes of the church, the cardinals and the bishops, to have a woman speaker. Okay? That's another issue that they have and we have also, but uh, I don't want to confuse that. But let me get back to this tefillah. What does he say at the end? We ask for forgiveness and we commit ourselves to genuine brotherhood with the people of the covenant. With the people of the covenant. In other words, the Pope is saying that the covenant between God and the Jewish people that we read about on Shabbat, that God made a covenant with Abraham and his descendants, is still alive, it's still valid, Judaism is still valid. Now, I wonder what... Pope Pius X was thinking, right? He said, who is this guy? John, is this the same religion? It's a complete reversal of, of their teachings. And here's the human result of Nostra This is Pope John Paul II. He came to the great synagogue in Rome um, to greet uh, Rav Elio Toaf. Right? The first time in history that a pope came officially to a synagogue in friendship and fraternity. What year was that? This was to, um, 1985. 1985, okay. Now, um, what's the Jewish side of the picture? Okay, the church changed. Not everybody loves us, but the higher, uh, official ca- church teaching, Catholic teaching, official pro- um, teachings of all the major Protestant churches are very similar. Right, we, it's no longer the case that for Christianity to be true, Judaism has to be false. It's no longer the case that anti-Semitism is okay. Now, what's the Jewish side? It's a mixed bag. Um, I live in Israel. Um, there's a church outside of Tveria that had a fire in 2015, it's in Tagpa. It's not far from Tveria. It's church, there was a fire. About a third of the church was burned to the ground. Okay. Well, this could be just normal vandalism. We have vandalism here, too, in America, but it was a bit more than that. Um, sc- scrawled on the walls by the vandals, was a Hebrew phrase. Can anybody read that? It's a phrase that comes out of our prayer book, folks. It's, it says, Idols you should surely destroy. So this was done by some extremist religious Jews who burned down the church who believed that the church was idolatry and we are obligated by Jewish religious law to destroy idolatry, at least idolatry, in the land of Israel. So um, there's still a lot of hatred, not only this Esav Son but there's still a lot of hatred, old-world hatred, by religious Jews or extremist religious Jews toward Christianity. So not everything is, is hunky-dory uh, in the Jewish side. Now, I was part of a... a a group of rabbis who said, Orthodox rabbis, traditional rabbis, who said, we need to respond, we Orthodoxy, we rabbis need to respond to this monumental change that took place in the church. Because we really never said anything after Nostra Aetate. There was a document called Dabru Emet in 1990 um, that uh, was signed by a number of rabbis, Jewish leaders, about the relationship to Christianity. I'm an Orthodox Jew. There were almost no orthodox rabbinical signatures to that. So we felt, you know, it's about time. All these wonderful moves have been made by the church. We have to respond and say officially, as traditionalists, as rabbis, we have to respond um, and and talk about what the new relationship is um, of, of religious or traditional Judaism toward the church. And we wrote a document called To Do the Will of Our Father in Heaven. And here are the main points. You have the text in front of you. And I'm going to close with this, and we can open it up for discussions and questions and answers. Um, right now, there are about 85 Orthodox rabbis who've signed this. Uh, we're going to open it up to uh, Orthodox leaders in general, women, um, teachers, scholars, um, community leaders. So we seek to do the will of our Father in heaven by accepting the hand offered to us by Christian brothers and sisters. Jews and Christians must work together as partners to address the moral challenges of our age. Okay? Um, the Shoah. The Shoah. Now normally Jews, at least traditional Jews, think of the Shoah as the Goyim killed us. Right? It was the the Gentile world killed us, and the Gentile world were Christians. That was the sad reality to it. So it was us against them, or more more accurately, them against us. So this document proclaims a whole new relationship or a whole way of looking at the Shoah. The Shoah was a climax of centuries of disrespect, oppression, and rejections of Jews and the hatred that developed between Jews and Christians. Mostly hatred uh, of Christians toward Jews, I would say. But the failure it only happened because there was a failure to break through this contempt and engage in dialogue and it was the, the distance and the, the lack of recognition by, to, of the other right, that allowed this evil and genocide to occur and then we made a statement that's enormously controversial we not only talked about brotherhood and working together and you be nice to us and we'll be nice to you. We, we made a statement about the religious, theological importance of Christianity. And we said that the emergence of Christianity in history, it wasn't an accident and it wasn't an error, but it was willed by the divine. It was a gift to the nations. Very similar to what this, this uh, Rabbi Jacob Emden said in Germany that Christianity just isn't a mistake. There's something going on here. God willed Christianity to, take, uh, to emerge, even though it's very different from us, even though there are significant theological and religious difference, and God willed the separation between partners with significant differences, but not a separation between enemies. We shouldn't be enemies any longer, even though we're different from them, and even though, see, I believe personally, God is a pluralist. You know Abraham Joshua Heschel said this, and he was, "I think he's absolutely right. God's a pluralist. What, is, what did Heschel mean? He meant that God, God's plan for humanity is for there be, there to be different religions. Right? Not everybody should, should be at the same synagogue or worship at the same church. It's a good, It's, it's a human good that there are different religions. But part of that means that I can respect you if your religion is different from me, but I should stay in my religion and you should stay in your religion. That's part of God's plan too. None of us, neither of us, that is not, neither Jews nor Christians can achieve God's mission to the world by ourselves. We need to cooperate and partner with each other. We don't need to be like each other, but at least we need to partner with, with each other and understand each other and do God's work together and this is another very controversial statement. Jews and Christians have more in common than what divides us. Here's what we have in common. The ethical monotheism of Abraham. The relationship with the one creator of heaven and earth who loves us and cares for all of us. Jewish sacred scriptures, they also believe, they, they revere what they call the Old Testament. Some, some Christians don't call it the Old Testament anymore. The Old Testament is a kind of derogatory, it's a value loaded term, right? Because of what it meant before Nostra well, yeah, it's the old, it's passe, it's invalid, it's obsolete. Right? So it's, a lot of Christians don't use that term anymore. They call it shared scriptures because it's something they share with Jews. Okay? Um, a belief in tradition, the values of life and family, compassion and compassionate righteousness and justice. Right? And we have a common mission to perfect the world under the sovereignty of God. And the, the, the outcome of this is that Jews and Christians need to be models of service and unconditional love and holiness. Not only love of God, but love of each other. And we're all created in God's holy image, and Jews and Christians will remain dedicated to the covenant by playing an active role together in redeeming the world. So what's the great hope? What's the great hope of of God's mission for the Jews, what is we, what? Are, what are we supposed to be achieving? What are we supposed to be working for? You know, is it all just staying together in, as a community and preserving Jewish identity toward what end? So here's the here's the the great hope of the prophets and the rabbis and God Himself, or God Herself, or itself, right? And it's Micha, the prophet. Micha tells us this. That all people should beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hips. We should not learn war anymore. We should, every person should sit under his vine and his fig tree. And no one shall make him afraid. Now, I live in a part of the world, folks, where everybody's afraid. There's terrorism, there's death, there's slaughter, there's, there's um, eviction. You know, not far from where I live, 500,000 Syrians have been slaughtered. Right? And two blocks from where I live, Jews have been killed by senseless terrorism. Right? Everybody's afraid. But it doesn't have to be that way. We have to work together so that no one will be afraid. So that each people can walk each in the name of his God. We don't all have to have the same name of God. Jews, Christians can believe in the Trinity and we can believe in the one pure monotheistic God. That's okay. that's the vision that's what we have to work for as religious jews and religious christians and if you want to see it in picture form here's what it is here's what it should be this is a very rare moment we ain't there yet folks this is a very rare moment Um, anybody recognize the people in the picture who's the one in the white kippah all right that's pope francis when he came to jerusalem in 2014 (laughs) The man in the knitted kippah. Anybody know who that is? That's a Rabbi Abraham Scorca from Buenos Aires, Argentina. He's the rabbi. He's the head of the Conservative rabbinical school in Buenos Aires. He's a close friend of the Pope. They wrote a book together. They're a very close friend, They talk to each other almost daily. Scorca came to Jerusalem when Pope Francis came, and. Um, there's an imam here who you can't see okay this should this is the dream this is God's dream this is the dream of the prophets okay. but we have a long way to go to get there and our document says that Jews can't do it alone and Christians can't do it alone certainly Muslims can't do it alone we can only do it together together as religious people faithful to our traditions faithful to our God so this is the wonderful new story that has still, is still evolving between the relationship of Christianity and Judaism. Thank you.
0: Okay, friend, we have about 20 minutes. Uh, Max, if we have some questions. As you can tell, Rabbi Korn is not only a scholar in this area, but deeply involved in the relationship on a global level. So let's open up the floor and he'll moderate yourself,
1: Yeah. Yes. So Jewish children grow up and they say, I'm Jewish because I don't believe in Jesus. How can we educate our Jewish
2: children to understand what it means to be Jewish with the values that they share with their Christian friends? Can I just ask you repeat questions?
1: Yeah. Um, Many. Jews today define them. I'm going to rephrase it a bit. I hope I'm, I, I, I won't distort it. Um, many Jews today understand their own identity in a negative way. They say, we're Jews because we're not Christians. So how can we, sum- and by the way, that's, that's a great fear because that's the case. Those who advocate relationship with Christianity, many Jews fear that's going to dilute our own identity. You know, That's just going to take away from the separateness of, uh, and the richness of who we are okay so the answer is how can we educate to be something better than that or more than that or more meaningful than that the answer is I mean you have it really easy folks you got Rav Shmuley right here right he, that's what he's trying to do he's trying to give you a positive substantive understanding of a meaningful Judaism in and of itself we don't have to define ourselves by not being the other right we have so much in our tradition so much to give so much values, so many ethics, so much spirituality, you know. But the, the tragedy is that Jews don't know it. Mm-hmm. You know, I went to Columbia University for graduate school, and in the spring, there was this great festival there were all these Zen Buddhists walking around on campus, you know, with Zen robes and shaved heads, and most of them were Jew, were born Jewish. Right? they were looking for spirituality, and they had no education, so they they had to go to Buddhism for spirituality and God. So the and, and so the answer is, you got to study, you got to study, you have to have a personal commitment, and and little by little, you begin to appreciate what we really have. And when you appreciate what you really have, you don't have to worry about about getting close to someone who's not like you. You know, Abraham Heschel, he's one of my teachers, I mean, I know he was not a physical teacher of mine, but I learned so much from his books. And he said, the first requisite of, of uh, interfaith relations is faith. If you don't have faith, you can't have an interfaith relation. And that's, you know, that, that's an existential issue for Jews because we don't know enough to have faith. So I'm not asking you to take a great leap of faith and you know, be unscientific, but I am asking you to study more. And thank God there are enough knowledgeable, well-meaning, good rabbis around that you can study with. But you've got to take that leap and make the commitment. Because if you don't do that, then you just, you have a negative identity, you know. I'm me because I'm not him. I'm Jewish because I'm not Christian, you know. Life is, should be much richer than that. Yes. Has there
2: been a uh, the to the minister of God?
1: No, no, no. Um, and I know that personally because I've had, you know, two years ago I was invited to go to Athens because the Israeli ambassador to Greece understood there was a serious problem that Jews go to Greece to understand Greeks and Greek culture and Greeks don't come to Israel. And they have this old notion of, uh, because they never went through a reformation they never went through a Second Vatican Council. They don't uh, accept this notion of pluralism. I mean, the greatness of the, Va- the, the, the conceptual and spiritual breakthrough of the Vatican Council is they said, we can be faithful Christians, and Jews can be faithful Jews. And maybe God wants both at the same time. You know, the Greek Orthodox never went through that. You know? the, the Jewish extremists who burned down the church in Togba never went through that. Right? For, for, for Judaism to be true, they had to destroy the church. So the Greek Orthodox have not gone through that modernization process, and the Muslims have not gone through that process. That's really why you see the Muslim world, much of the Muslim world convulsing, because they can't handle the fact that there's other religions that are succeeding, or other people that are succeeding, right? And they, because it's contrary to their theology, so they lash out in violent behavior. So don't think that the whole world is is like us, or like Western Christianity, because it isn't. That's a, a lot to, you know, there's a lot of work to be done there. Yes?
2: Wealth the difference is, is, is not always easy. Uh, second question is, and what about the, the, the frequency with which many Christian churches nowadays—not Catholic, mm-hmm. personally—but are adopting, I would say, appropriating Jewish practices. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, yeah. the um, model savers.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Catholic. There are Catholics who engage in that. Uh-huh. I can tell you personally, Catholics. I, I mean, does it bother you, right? A little too—that's a little too close for comfort. I,
2: I, thought, yeah. I saw a sign of a model seder at a Catholic University once. I thought it posted next to it, and Dr. Cohen will be holding a model mask.
1: Well, <laughs> look—I think—I think there are, you know, what can I? When you know little, it's very easy to lose it, to dilute, you know. Again, let me go back. The—the the more you know, the more rooted you are in your own faith, the easier it is to to really get closer to people on the outside, without the fear of diluting and, you know, um, so I you know, I speak to Catholic audiences a lot, you know Nostra Tate was passed in 1965, so 2015 was the 50th anniversary of Nostra Tate so I spoke all over Europe in Catholic churches and all over the United States in Catholic universities And I I always said, how many people read or studied Nostra Tate? And the Catholics are abysmally ignorant of it, by and large, by and large. Um, So I want to make them better Catholics. That's what I tell them. I want you to be a better Catholic. I want you to study these Catholic documents. Because when you're a better Catholic, it's easier for me to relate to you. And when you're a better Jew, a more knowledgeable Jew, it's easier to relate to a non-Jew, to a Gentile, without the fear of assimilation or, you know, losing your faith—that's um, an ex- thats a secondary benefit of being a knowledgeable Jew, right? The primary benefit is that it enriches your life. It it, it gives you a, a wholesome, robust, meaningful sense of your own Jewish identity. Um, so, you know, what can I say? As the Talmud says, go study. Yes.
2: One of one of the. Best courses that I've had on something like this. Um, you probably wouldn't expect otherwise from him since he signed on to your uh, item. Uh, Rabbi Uter. Uh, Alan
1: Uter. Um, Rabbi Alan Uter. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah. Taught a, a course for several years on um, the Jewish understanding of the Christian um, texts. And right. He taught it in Baltimore to his congregants, and I was one of them at right. the time. Right. And See to, we can do
1: that today. We can do that today without fear of of trying to uh without fear that Christians are gonna to try to convert us.
2: But the, at the same time he he welcomed people, we had a number of people that came over from the Archdiocese studying under the program, but at the same time he was teaching his PhD students, but he was not welcome to all of the congregants because he said as you said earlier, it, it's a faith item. You have to be ready to study some of that material. And so While he would start off the content making clear that he was not attempting to proselytize in any way, but this was a Jewish study. But not all Jews were ready definitely not all Christians were ready to study look
1: you know, historical attitudes change very, very slowly. And we have it in you know, we have it scarred into our bodies all the persecution and all the hatred and all the animosity and all the contempt that the church practiced toward us for 1,800 years. So don't expect Jews to change on a dime on this issue. You know, there's a lot of fear. Um, This, uh, if we had another hour, I'd talk to you about two major figures around the time of Nostre Tataru. There's Abraham Heschel and Joseph Soloveitchik. And and they played great roles in the Jewish response to this change in the church. And they they had opposite instincts. Heschel was a prophet. He believed that things could really change. Soloveitchik didn't believe that things could change because he had been, you know, his earliest memories were of persecution in Lithuania by the church. And he, you know, when that's your earliest memory, it's very hard to to drop it. So Jewish attitudes change. so I would say this, that it's only to our detriment that we don't understand the new changes in the church, because we have enemies in the world today. We have enemies in the world today, but the church ain't one of them, folks. And it's better to know who your real enemies are and try to um, forge partnerships and alliances and real understanding with those people who are not our enemies. Thank you. Uh, can I just say a word about Rabbi Hitchcock's theology and Christianity? Rabbi? Yes, Yes. Yes. So I, I don't know if you heard Rabbi Greenberg last week. He was here. He is one of the great, great thinkers and spiritual personalities of our time. Um, he was, I would say, the principal author of of this statement. There were five key people at the beginning. I was a secondary person. Rabbi Yitz Greenberg was the primary, but he is the deepest, the most thoughtful, the most progressive thinker on these issues and it's interesting he comes out of the tra- tra- traditional you know Jewish orthodox camp um, it was he who first understood the meaning of the of the Shoah for Jewish theology and, and understood the change in the Catholic Church and understood the opportunity that's here we can't be mired in the past you know we can't continue to have these medieval Notions of what the church was, because that endangers our future. And Yitz was the was the one who really understood that. Um, If we want to have a world for our grandchildren that's better than the world that our grandparents experienced in Lithuania or wherever your grandparents came from, if we want to, if our concern is about our grandchildren, then we have to think about the future and forging an appreciation and partnership with uh, with the Christian world. And that was, I think. And yitz was the one who understood that there's a certain religious and theological uh, harmony between judaism and christianity now that we don't have to fear that they're only out to convert us um, we ought to do what we can to understand and to forge partnerships and to learn from each other really to learn from each other that's a very bold progressive step for an orthodox rabbi to take and rabbi greenberg took it and i think we're all in debt to him for doing that. Yes? I know that uh, the Christians uh, like to delve into learning Hebrew. I mean, I think that's a really wonderful concept. Learning what? Learning <laughs> that there are people who are a Christian, uh, Christianity that they like to learn Hebrew. So that
2: seems to it could be a modern mm-hmm. A modern
1: Ah, so that's, a see. Okay, so I'll, re, I'll try to repeat the question. You know that there are many Christians who like to learn Hebrew? Yeah, there's And that worries you? is no, that, I think that's wonderful uh-huh. I mean, the, the, to have
2: a, a common
1: language. Right, right. Um, it's true because, now why do they do this? Not because they're masochists, you know? <laughs> I mean, they do this because of this understanding that just come, really taken root, I would say, in the last 50 years. That the church to understand itself, the Catholic church, the Protestant churches, to understand themselves, their own identity, they have to go back to their Jewish roots. They don't have to become Jewish, but they have to understand their Jewish roots, and the Jewish roots were formed in Hebrew culture. You know, I, I told Rabbi Yankovich that I got what's a good Jewish boy like me doing in a field like this? You know, you could ask yourself that question. And the answer is, it's just God had a certain plan. I never thought of it. He put me into a seminar in Jerusalem where I was with very, very pious Catholic theologians who were living in Jerusalem because they felt this was the best way for them to be Christians, to live in the land where Jesus lived with the Jewish people that spoke Hebrew. Okay? So it's because of this turn that they understand, they're going back to their roots. Um, Now about Messianic Jews, that's a whole different kettle of fish. Um, Christians are easy, Messianic Jews are harder, right? Because Messianic Jews are still Jews. They may be heretics in my judgment, but they're still Jews. And that's a whole different category. I'll tell you the truth. I feel least comfortable least comfortable with two classes of people in this field the first are Jews who've converted to Catholicism right and there's significant and some of them are major players in the church I never liked them I, I I feel really uneasy with them that's the worst possible advertisement for interfaith relations that I can think of right? even when they're they seem to be positive towards. Jews they're the worst symbol of Good relations between Jews and Christians. That, and, the, and the second group were Messianic Jews, right? Because I think they've, they've distorted the fundamentals of Judaism. They may be nice people as individuals, but their beliefs, I think, are, are terribly, terribly harmful. Yes? Yeah, because I think what they're saying is that the right path here is for you to give up your Jewish identity and become a member of the church. I don't believe that. right? And and that, I think, gives very bad signals. Um, See, in a certain sense, that really is a direct challenge and rejection of my fundamental beliefs. I told you, I think God's a pluralist. I think he wants me to remain a Jew and the pope to remain Catholic. uh, I think that's the best way the world is ordered. Um, so I don't feel comfortable with with people who were born Jews who betrayed our people and our and our uh, religion. They have a right to do it, I, you know, but I but I don't I don't have to appreciate it. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Uh, yes.
2: Does that mean that you uh, don't feel comfortable with uh, Christians
1: who converted to Judaism? Um, to a lesser extent a lesser extent now that's a uh, you know that's a good question I really appreciate it. no 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 sir I appreciate it because you know what's good for the goose is good for the gander and that's and I've, with complete logical consistency you know I should have a similar attitude but I would say this that that um, when when a single Jew leaves the Jewish people we're a small people we're not even a rounding error in the Christian world. You know. I went, a publisher once called me and said, I want you to write a book about Israel for Christians. And I said, thank you for the compliment, but the truth is I'd rather write a book about Israel for Jews, because they don't understand Israel. He said, no, but you don't understand. He said, rumor has it that there are more Christians in the world out there <laughs> than Jews, and I want to sell books, right? So in other words, there's this huge disparity they, they are in the billions and we, you know, are 12, 13 million. So when even a single Jew leaves, it's a tremendous loss to the people um, from, a, from a, a people point of view, okay? It's not the same um, harm when a Christian becomes a Jew. But I would say, you know, I, there was, I like good Christians who are born Christian, who believe Christian, and who, who I can talk to, you know, as, as a man of faith. Um, Okay. Thank you.
0: Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming.